This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Well, with that, let us get into the preaching of God's Word. If you have your Bible, open it to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're going to start this morning. I'll be in a few other places, and then together uh, we will round out with some prayer. Let me just tell you, we're beginning a new series this Sunday morning called The Unbroken Song. On Friday, December 25th, 1863, almost said 1963, Friday, December 25th, 1863, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow was sitting in his home trying to make sense of the dissonance between the joy of that Christmas day and his own experience. Two years earlier, his wife had been burned alive. Longfellow was awakened from a nap to his screaming wife, who had had her dress start on fire. Uh, He tried to put it out with a number of means, including at one point just grabbing her and wrapping himself around her. He also suffered burns, but hers were uh, life-threatening, and she died the following morning. That previous summer to 1863, his son was wounded in battle, narrowly by just mere millimeters, avoiding permanent paralysis as a bullet almost really struck the, just, just to the side of his spine. And the country was fighting itself in a brutal civil war that in 1863 showed no signs of coming to any sort of conclusion. And as he pondered all of this, Longfellow could hear nearby church bells ringing out familiar Christmas songs about peace on earth. So in part grief, part hope, he sat down and and wrote the poem that we know today as the song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. He, he, the, the, it's, a, it's a poem about remembering that Jesus came to bring peace to a broken and anxious world. The second verse of I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day says that despite the chaos, God had brought the sun up that Christmas day. And the familiar songs began, and he was reminded of how true they were. In spite of everything that had happened, the songs he was hearing had always been true and and remain true. In that second verse, he calls them the unbroken song. He's referencing back to what the angels began to sing as a great multitude when they announced the birth of Jesus to the shepherds in Luke 2. First, to a few shep- first an angel to a few shepherds, and then a whole host of the great multitude saying of peace on earth and hope for all people. So remembering that, that same hope in difficult times of our own, we are calling this sermon series The Unbroken Song. Jesus has come. 
promised you an Advent series, and here it is. It's no longer the Christmas season of Advent, but we will spend the next four weeks celebrating that Jesus has come, looking at four reasons that Jesus came to earth, and we need it. I... uh, I've had the framework of this series in my mind for a while, but I I decided to make some adjustments on Tuesday. And I'm not trying to make too much of this. But on Tuesday, I decided to move Jesus coming to be our peace to this week. It was supposed to be a few weeks from now. And then on Wednesday, we watched the chaos unfold in our nation's capital. And, and transparently, uh, Wednesday of last week kind of wrecked me. Uh, from about 2 p.m. onwards, I just I couldn't really think about anything else. Uh, I was home when the news reports began coming in, and so just... Holly and I were together after a few minutes of trying to wrap our minds around what was happening there. We just sat down and and prayed. And it's touchy. We have young kids at home. Um, And we were obviously really upset and uh, had a hard time hiding that. But at the same time, we're not going to tell our kids everything. So at that point, we just prayed short prayers and told our girls we were praying about something happening in Washington, D.C., and then just throughout the rest of the week under the providence of God, processing that and preparing this sermon just were part healing and part working it through for me, and and my hope is for a bit of this to be that for you too. Announcing the birth of the Messiah to shepherds in a field A whole chorus of angels come together and then proclaim that there's now going to be peace, that there is the possibility and hope of peace on earth. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, in the the refrain to the song, says at the end of each verse, peace on earth and goodwill toward men. It's Luke 2.14. That's the King James Version. It means that peace is possible and hope is real. And what a word, what a word for us this week, because we need good news of peace and hope. So I'm going to do this in four parts. First, I I want to define the kind of peace that we really need. Second, I want to answer the question, how is Jesus our peace? Third, what does Jesus being our peace mean for us? And finally, what about peace on earth? So what about peace between people will be where we end? What about peace where we live? So first, what kind of peace do we need? Second, how is Jesus our peace? Third, what does peace for Jesus, peace with Jesus mean for us? And finally, what does the peace of Jesus mean for the world? So the main passage we're in this morning is Ephesians 2, starting at verse 14. Let me just read a few verses for us, starting at verse 14. Follow along with me. For he himself is our peace, 
who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Would you join me in asking for God's help? God, we live in unsettling times. May we not look to our own ideas or the, these idea, the ideas of this world, but may, may we look to your wisdom, seek you in your word, and through the Holy Spirit, may we hear from you now. Help us. Help us to be a people of peace who brings peace. Amen. So look at the first words here. For he himself is our peace. Now this section stands on its own plenty well. But it's also where Paul is moving from describing how people are saved individually to what the corporate nature of our salvation is like. So before this, it's personal. After this, salvation is communal, which is why it makes sense here for Paul to say, and for us to say, that Paul has both in mind. He has in mind a description of personal and individual salvation and our common salvation in mind when he says Jesus is our peace with God. And so let me tell you why I think this is both individual and corporate. If you look back at Ephesians 2, the first verse and following, these are some of the most fundamental words to understanding the gospel. I'm not going to read them all to you, but just look at what it says back. Start, just look in verse 1. You were once dead in your sin. I cannot put it more plainly to you than this. Every per person fits one of two descriptions. You are either presently dead in your sin or you used to be. If you feel like that's too harsh, Paul's description of people dead in their sin isn't just limited to murderers and drug dealers. He says anyone who is living for themselves with their own desires driving them fits this description. What's more, these verses actually say that you might think you are free and living the life that you want to live, but in doing that, you're actually being deceived. What you think you are freely choosing, you are actually being manipulated to desire by the devil. I know I, I said that. This first sermon of 2021, I'm fired up. We're going to go this morning. If you are not living with Christ as your king, 
you are following the prince of the power of the air. The book of James says that living this way actually puts you at enmity, at odds with God. So the first thing you need, I need, is peace with God. And that peace only comes through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, verse 5, made you alive with God. In other words, gave you peace with God. And now verse 10 says that you are a new kind of creation with a purpose to live for God and live for his glory. If you think that salvation, if your idea of that is taking you from being a decent person to a little bit better person, or from feeling like you didn't have much direction in life and now you have some solid direction, you're not thinking biblically about who you are and who God is. You were dead in your sin. You were an enemy of God. And only if you are in Christ have you been made alive to God and now he calls you his child. Christianity isn't a rehab program. It's a peace treaty with the clause that says all past transgressions of war are immediately forgotten, and together we're now family. You need peace with God. And how does that happen? One verse before we started reading, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. By the blood of Christ. This kind of peace is only possible through Jesus. The previous few verses, where Paul begins to make this transition from personal to communal corporate salvation, he does that by, by talking about two groups. Two people groups. There's the Jewish nation, and then there's Gentiles, which is basically everybody else. So previously, he says you were separate groups. One that might be saved by God, and the other with almost no possibility of being saved. This is what Paul is saying. One group knows the covenant promises of God. Doesn't mean they're saved. Doesn't mean everybody's saved but means that they know how one might be saved, and the other, outside of the covenant community, almost no idea of how that happens. But now, Paul says you're one group, and that group is all people who have been saved by Jesus Christ. This is really important. This is Paul's whole case for peace with God and peace with others built in right here. This is how Paul makes his case for peace with God and peace together. It's this. Every person who is saved is saved in exactly the same way through the blood of Jesus Christ. So we're all the same. We all start from the same place. We're all headed in the same direction. The only possibility that any of us has is pleading the blood of Jesus Christ. And Jesus becomes our peace by doing exactly what no one of us could do. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. We must be justified because on our own we are guilty. The opposite of justification is going to be condemnation. Each one of us, on our own, all by ourselves, are guilty of transgressing both the law and the holiness of God. A few verses on in Romans 5, it says that justification happens again while we were enemies of God. But once justified, what we usually mean, think justification, just think salvation. That's what we usually mean when we say saved. Once justified, we are reconciled to God, and justification only comes through Jesus' blood. So there's two groups in Ephesians 2. The first, the, the Jewish people. Under their system, what Ephesians 2 is referring to is that the blood of animals were shed as an atoning sacrifice for their sins. But now, in current times, Jesus' own blood, which was shed and poured out on the cross, both atones for and now cleanses us from sin in that once one-time sacrifice is good forever and ever and ever, and you need it to be saved. There's no other way. But here's the good news. Here's the good news about the blood of Jesus Christ. It's available to everybody, and it's free. Romans 5, 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. We rejoice in, the, in hope of the glory of God. Everybody can have peace with God and the hope that that brings. No matter where you come from or what your previous life was like, you can have peace with God. And our peace with God should also then give us peace with one another. Ephesians 2, 14 and 15 is where it's clear that Paul is making the transition to talking, talking about reconciliation between people and God to now reconciliation between people and other people. But that doesn't mean he stopped talking about being reconciled to God. Look at, let me just read verse 14 again. For he himself is our peace. All of this is going to be able to apply to both God and people and people to people. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Christ breaks down the wall between us and God, and he breaks down the wall between, and that was once artificially set up by the former covenant people and the rest of the world. In other words, Christ breaks down walls between us and God, and Christ breaks down walls between us and one another. God's purpose and intention is very clear right here in Ephesians 2. God's purpose and intention was never a small, isolated, special group of people that would enjoy him and know his blessings. His plan was always for that small group of people to know him through covenant relationship so that they might testify to the rest of the world that life is hard, but God is good, and invite everybody 
into the new covenant inaugurated and open and available through the blood of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus has always meant the breaking down of walls between God and people. And it's always been God's plan to break down the walls that people set up between themselves. This isn't something different. From the beginning, this is the heart of God to reconcile and to redeem. He wants you to know him. He wants you to love him. And he's prepared good work for you, which is to love other people and in so doing, make him known to more and more people. We have to get this. At the heart of what Paul is saying in the middle of Ephesians 2 is not that our job is to make more and more people like us. Our job is to break down walls so that along with us, more and more people will become like Jesus. You don't become like Jesus from separating yourself and getting angry and finding more ways to divide yourself from other people. You become like him from sacrificially loving others and giving of yourself and making your whole life a pursuit of living by faith and growing in grace. Division will not make you more like Jesus and it won't make anybody else like him either. So let me tell you how I, I think this works itself out with where we're at as a, as a church. And I mean that first in the, in the big C sense, the, the wider body of Christ, and then the smaller sense of which this local church is a part of. And then let me talk a little bit about the church of Jesus Christ in our nation. I sort of think about this in concentric circles. Just here's how I've been processing my, my heartache over the past four or five days. Now, the first thing I've done is just sought the Lord in prayer and in the scriptures. The circles I have to work in and out of are these. My, my inner circle is myself. I can let my thoughts just rattle around in my head ad nauseum unless I ask the Lord to help break me out of my own way and fill my thoughts and my affections in my pursuit of my passions with him. When you think of these concentric circles, you're going to have less and less influence, but it's got to start someplace. I have a ton of influence over my own response. Of all the people in the world, I have the most influence over my response. I can be angry or bitter or anxious, or I can retreat and just feel like when I see darkness, I want to go and hide, or... I can ask God to help me push back darkness, and the way that it starts is for me to begin pushing back darkness within myself. So it has to start with me. If I want to ask God to be a peacemaker by the power of Jesus who brings peace, I first need to ask him to help me understand the enmity that I once had from him and how he made peace with me. 
if I have any hope of wanting to be a peacemaker with other people. So it has to start first with me, and then it's got to work itself out from there. And just go with me on this for a minute. These problems feel so big, and we can feel powerless. But I can tell you what will not help. You praying less and being angry more. That helps nobody. It doesn't help you, and it certainly doesn't help anybody else. I looked at a lot of news, scrolled a lot of social media, and I watched a lot of videos last week. And I doubt I'm alone in that. What if this next week we in equal measure prayed? I'm not saying no news. I'm not saying don't go online. I think that's to some degree unrealistic unless you're just going to fast from that for a time. But as much as you're scrolling, could you pray? And then from there, just work out on your circles. If you're married to a believer, pray together. Next, beyond that, you're probably looking at one of two groups. You're going to have you, you're going to have your, your family, and then you're going to have one of two groups. There's either going to probably be your church here or your friend group. You're going to, you're going to get to a, a friend group of some kind, a peer group. Now, you have to go with me on this. There's nobody, listen to me well on this next one. There's nobody I'm singling out, but I see it and I see it widely. You going to social media to rage post helps nobody. Nobody's mind is changed on social media. Let me repeat that for those of you in the back or wherever. Nobody's mind is changed by social media. But here's what does happen. Lines are drawn between longtime friends and brothers and sisters in Christ to file their witness and act like fools all over the place on social media. And it is damaging to the witness of Jesus Christ, and it does everything that the gospel is working and has done for breaking down walls. It just builds them right back up. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Not blessed are the angry who goes, I'm going to share this at all my friends who don't get what's really happening in the world. The church looks stupid on social media a whole lot, and it's not helping anybody. I have to handle this one too. Now I'm just going. I see this far too often. If you're posting and people are arguing, and you're clapping back, and your response is, I'm just posting here. You don't have to respond. I'm just throwing this out. You have to know that that's super naive. It's not the same thing, but it's more like walking through a party than you think it might be. When you're just consistently throwing up things that you know are inflammatory, would you walk around a party filled with your friends just blurting things out? And then when somebody comes back at you, engages with you to say, hey, I'm not here to argue, I'm just throwing this out there. 
No, because that's not how we are at parties. We don't just walk around screaming inflammatory things. Rage posting on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, I don't know, whatever you're on, isn't going to help. It's going to hurt. So in some senses, my widest circle is this church. There's, there's a privilege to what I do, and, and then there's a weight to it. I do not take lightly that my calling is to get up in front of you and say, thus saith the Lord. But I can't serve you well if I'm not willing to tell you what the Lord says. So please know that I am aware and I realize that there are reactions all across the spectrum to what happened at the Capitol on Wednesday. But as your pastor, I want to tell you how I think the Bible would call Christians to respond to what happened at the Capitol on Wednesday. I get it. Some of you would have wanted to be at that rally. Others of you want to go on the 20th when Joe Biden is sworn in. What we have to know as a church is that neither of these men are going to ultimately fix this, and our hope can't be in either one. The world is not ending because one lost and one is not coming to save us or vice versa. The statement would have been equally true if the election results would have been reversed. This has been a really, really tough political season for the church. Christians saw things very differently. But folks, if we can't get peace together in here, right, we have no hope of having anything to say out there. Jesus said that you are the light of the world, but that's not singular. It's plural. He means you all, my people, my followers are the light of the world. He's referring to the church. And together, we're what God has said he's going to use to bring peace and spread hope. If we can't figure out how to, how to do that among a few of us, and when I say a few, I just mean Christians, because there's a lot less Christians than there are non-Christians. If we can't figure that out among the big C, the church, we have no hope of being that before other people, peacemakers, the light of the world. And so here are some things that I think we can agree on biblically. If you don't agree, you can bring me a Bible verse. One, what happened at the Capitol on Wednesday was chaotic and tragic, and we can lament it as believers. People died. People were hurt. People will lose their jobs. Our nation was sent into turmoil, and I don't even want to talk about who caused it or didn't cause it. I see way too many believers saying, well, what about? I don't care what about. 
Let's talk about Wednesday. That was horrific. People died. Image bearers of God died. Our nation was sent into turmoil. We don't have to what about. We can just say, that was a bad day. Jesus, come quickly. Another thing. Believers can be all over the political spectrum. But what I found really hard to reconcile was signs and banners and posters that bore the name of Christ marching in some kind of a political active revolt as if that is in any way representative of what our Savior wants. That's what some thought his revolution would be, and so they drew swords to defend him, and Jesus said, put away your sword. This isn't how my kingdom comes. Believers can protest. Believers can advocate. But let's not pretend in any way that Jesus came to lead political movements. He says over and over again the very opposite of that. Finally, what do we do now? What do we do now? This next week, I just have one thing that I think we do. Pray. I think we pray. These next couple of weeks, I hope I'm wrong, but I think they're going to be tough I think they're going to be divided, and I think the people of God should turn, humble our hearts, and pray. I, I believe with everything that I am that a lack of spiritual power has permeated the church, and we have reduced ourselves to the means of the world. Believers should pray so let me just close with three ways that I think we should pray according to Scripture this next week. As God's people, let us abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Romans 12, 9. Where things are evil... Let's call them evil. Where they are good, let's call them good, and let's pray that God would have us do more good and less evil. 1 Timothy 2. Let's pray that we would live peaceful, quiet, and honorable lives so that we would not put a stumbling block in the way of our witness. <coughs> between us and those who don't know Christ. Peaceful, quiet, and honorable lives. And third, let's pray that Christians demonstrate humility and respect 
toward everybody because we too were once lost and deserving of God's judgment. There is no place for the haughty prayer of a Christian. Every single one of us starts in the same place, dead in our sins and trespasses. And if we have been saved, then it is through no action of our own. It is through no ingenuity of our mind. And it is certainly through no power that we provide or bring. If we are saved, we are only saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. So we have no place for the haughty prayers of I'm better than. Every Christian prayer should start with, God, thank you that you have saved me, wretch that I am, ignorant that I am, lost, broken that I was. This is a time for the church to fulfill Jesus' call to be peacemakers. I just think about this. Listen, work your concentric circles. If this happens in me, and it happens in my family, and it happens in you, and it happens in your family, and it happens in our church, we got a couple hundred people. I'll take a couple hundred people looking to bring peace and make peace. <clears throat> because that can really make a difference. The events of the past week were hard to watch. But I believe because of the blood of Jesus Christ that there can be peace and that hope is available for all people. So I do not dismay. I am not brokenhearted. Yes, it was hard. But I have not lost hope, and neither should you. Not because of the political system. Not because of a certain candidate or a party or anything else, but because God remains sovereign. Because the songs that the angels sung began long before there was the United States of American capital, and they will continue long after there's no such thing. Peace on earth, hope for all people, is the song of the gospel. It's a song of our church. It's the song of our faith. So take heart, for God has overcome the world. Let's pray. God, may we, as believers... By faith, in hope, with love, praise your name that you have broken down the dividing wall of hostility. And may we look for ways to break down the dividing wall of hostility between us and other people. For the sake of Christ and under his name we pray. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.
www.thepeopleshow.org.